As a kid growing up in the 1980s, I watched a lot of cartoons. Young people today might not realize that there was a time when cartoons were not available 24-7 and certainly not on demand. There were a couple of decent ones on after school like He-Man, She-Ra, DuckTales, Inspector Gadget, Dennis the Menace, Transformers, and GoBots, but the prime cartoons were reserved for the coveted Saturday morning lineup airing from 7 a.m. till 1 p.m. on the three big networks of the time and most of TV's history, ABC, NBC, and CBS. I lived for these animated programs and would make color-coded notes in my TV guide, a weekly magazine that told you what shows were on television and when, to schedule which ones I was going to watch live and which I would videotape with our programmable video cassette recorder or VCR for any of you millennial listeners out there. It was a precursor technology to DVDs and DVRs. Muppet Babies, Tom and Jerry, Looney Tunes, and Pee-wee's Playhouse were amongst the programs highlighted and underlined in my TV guide, all of which are television shows powered by individualism, whimsy, sarcasm, and imagination that at one point or another had an episode featuring an RGM, or Rube Goldberg machine, an apparatus that takes many, often unnecessary, steps, using one element to activate the next, a la dominoes, for achieving the easiest of tasks in the most complicated fashion, purposely. I gave an example of a kind of RGM at the end of our last episode, Inventionation, when I talked about the board game Mousetrap. But perhaps the most famous RGM I know of is the breakfast machine featured at the beginning of the motion picture, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Let me see if I can set the backdrop leading up to the unveiling of the contraption to help you visualize the sequence of events, starting when Pee-wee Herman's twin bell alarm clock wakes him up. The man-child lifts the clock, which is connected to a record player with the string that pulls the switch to power on the turntable. As the capriciously cacophonous music plays, he snaps his bed sheets off like a retractable window shade and proceeds to hop into his bunny slippers before stepping out of bed to lift some teeny tiny dumbbells. Pee-wee takes a moment to run down Mr. Potato Head with a fire truck and shoot Godzilla in the face with a plastic space gun before jumping over his toy train orbiting a fire pole that he rides down to a funky hallway adorned with backlit panels featuring silhouettes of a lobster, a bat, a brontosaurus, and a skeleton leaping about like an 1850s prospector with gold dust on his denim Levi jeans. However, the movie does not detail the mechanism on the fire pole that changes Pee-wee from his pajamas into his trademark gray suit, white shoes, and red bow tie. I guess it is a family movie, so we don't need to see everything. Pee-wee prances into the kitchen to greet his tiny dog, Speck, who lives in a ridiculously gargantuan-sized doghouse. This is where Pee-wee fires up his Rube Goldberg contraption, the breakfast machine, by turning on a fan aimed to blow a couple of pinwheel toys into action as he lights a candle and slides it under a string attached to an anvil dangling above a platform prepped to set in motion a toy Ferris wheel once the anvil drops by cause of the burning string. Danny Elfman's circus music swells in the underscore as the Ferris wheel's gear turns a propeller that releases an egg through a plastic tube, delivering it to a bowl where it is retrieved by two water guns, each fashioned with metal rods through their chute holes that have suction cups meant to hold the egg horizontally as a red and white plastic insatiable drinking bird slowly taps the egg. 
Meanwhile, a pterodactyl skeleton holding two slices of bread in its talons is pulled along a wire that drops its cargo into the toaster located across the kitchen. The egg finally cracks over the heated pan and starts to sizzle. Another frying pan held by a hatless statue of Abraham Lincoln is set up where an indistinguishable figurine holding a bucket full of pancake batter stands beside it. Though it is unclear what activates the wire connected to it, again, it's a movie, so I'll cut it some slack. Pee-wee then leaves the machine to its devices and goes to the bathroom, which has a fish tank where the window would normally be. Once there, he proceeds to clean his teeth with a brush that is more suitably sized to a horse's mouth. And by the way, this is the only moment of this movie that I found to be unrealistic as a kid. I mean, who brushes their teeth before breakfast? Anyway, back in the kitchen, a Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton is squeezing oranges in its jaws above a carafe next to a switch that gets flipped, filling Speck's giant dog food bowl with kibble, which he then scampers over to nibble. Pee-wee scotch tapes up his nose and face really quick as Abe's pancakes get flipped up to the ceiling where they get stuck. The insatiable drinking bird cracks one more egg into the pan while Pee-wee tears the tape from his face, inducing a painfully refreshing scream before stepping onto an old-timey scale that dispenses his written fortune. A pivotal moment of the movie that gives him the ominous warning not to leave the house today. He scoffs at the advice when suddenly a bell rings in his busy mechanical kitchen, summoning him to his nearly cooked meal, to which he must race to catch the two toast slices catapulting out of the toaster and tossed on to his prepared plate of eggs, pancakes, and bacon. Not sure how or when the bacon was made, but again, it's a movie, not an RGM design contest. More on that a little bit later. Finally, Pee-wee sits down to butter his toast with another comically large utensil before saying good morning to Mr. Breakfast. The pancake face on his plate, made with egg eyes and bacon lips, who asks Pee-wee to pour some Mr. T cereal into his mouth. Pee-wee obliges Mr. Breakfast while pitying the fools that don't eat Mr. T cereal and digs himself up a singular mouthful of the cereal that he crunches on and swallows before daintily dabbing his lips with a napkin completely wasting the remainder of the delicious automated breakfast provided by a fantastical Rube Goldberg machine. A one-of-a-kind design of imagination that took an acute discernment of jocosity and creativity to conceive. However, if you look up the word Rube in the dictionary, you'll notice that the first definition is Rube. Noun. A country bumpkin. An inexperienced, unsophisticated person, or a nickname, often, but not necessarily, of Reuben. Pee-wee Herman's real name is Paul Rubens. But if you scan down a few entries later in Webster's New World Dictionary, you'll find Rube Goldberg listed as an adjective defined thusly, quote, a comically involved, complicated invention laboriously contrived to perform a simple operation, end quote, followed by a footnote that advises the reader to also see Goldbergian. As is usually the case with Scattered Curiosities episodes, I sometimes find myself feeling embarrassed by not knowing more about famously influential people from history while also feeling excited to discover so many unique stories that I hadn't heard before. And when I started typing Rube Goldberg into search engines to learn about this truly intriguing fellow, I came across other charismatic Rubes from history that caught my attention as well. This is Rubes, Rubies, Rubies, and Rubens. (laughs) 
Garrett Lucius Goldberg was born on the 4th of July in 1883. He received an engineering degree from the University of California at Berkeley at the behest of his father and proved the worth of the degree he earned by working for the Water and Sewers Department in San Francisco before becoming a sports cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle and then for the San Francisco Bulletin. In 1907, he moved to New York City to cartoon for the New York Evening Mail, and within eight years, he had a nationally syndicated comic strip earning him $50,000 a year, which translates to a million dollars a year in today money. This handsome salary can be attributed to a bidding war for his services between the New York Evening Mail and the news outlets owned by William Randolph Hearst. Rube Goldberg's comic strips were Mike and Ike, They Look Alike, Boob McNutt, Telephonies, What Are You Kicking About, The Weekly Meeting of the Tuesday Women's Club, and Lala Palooza. He also had a one-frame cartoon titled Foolish Questions. Mr. Goldberg became the very first president of the National Cartoonist Society and won a Pulitzer Prize for his nuclear power-themed political cartoon from the July 22, 1947 issue of The New York Sun depicting a family enjoying their backyard outside their house which rests upon a monstrously menacing black atomic bomb shaped like a bullet that is teetering between the edge of a cliff, labeled World Control, and a deep dark chasm, tagged World Destruction. Scatter curiosity, it is estimated that Rube Goldberg drew upwards of 50,000 cartoons in his life, and the National Cartoonist Society gives the Rubin Award annually to the Cartoonist of the Year in his honor. From the onset of his career in 1914, Rube would draw his RGMs from time to time between working on his many other cartooning obligations. His first contrivance was the automatic weight-reducing machine, which functioned using a donut, a balloon, wax, a bomb, and a stove to imprison an overweight person, forcing the user to lose weight as it was the only means of escape. The procession of each of his designs are always illustrated with letters to show which order the doohickey functions. And although these dexterous devices are what Rube is best known for today, they didn't really take off until he started drawing for Collier's Weekly between 1929 and 1931 via his comic, the inventions of Professor Lucifer G. Butts, G. for Gorgonzola, whom Goldberg modeled after an engineering professor of his from Berkeley who assigned his class with designing a machine capable of weighing the planet, something that Rube believed to be ludicrous. Rube Goldberg's thingamabobs were an augmentation of his political views and a platform for social commentary. He believed that human beings often took the difficult path in life, and according to him, the machines were symbolic of, quote, man's capacity for exerting maximum effort to accomplish minimal results. Scatter curiosity, Rube Goldberg machines are known as Vaspasierdan machine, or a what happens next machine, in Germany. Let's get familiar with a few of Rube's What Happens Next machines, shall we? For starters, how about a simple idea for an automatic device for emptying ashtrays, featuring a water pot, a rocket, and a squawking parrot, a signature creature found in many of the inventions of Professor Lucifer Gorgonzola Butts. The portable movie talkie camera is an eerily accurate foreshadowing of our current smartphone society through the lenses of 1930s spectacles. The contraption basically takes first-person and selfie-styled films of the wearer. 
It looks a bit like a Ghostbusters proton pack accessorized with a camera lens that extends over the head of the individual it is strapped to the back of. The caption for the cartoon is as topical today as when it was written. It says, quote, When they get the portable movie talkie camera down to a point where every man can carry one with him all the time, then the courts won't be put to the trouble of deciding who is telling the truth. End quote. You also have the revolval meter, a way to look at abstract art, featuring a man staring at a Jackson Pollock-like art piece while strapped to a rapidly spinning sideways turntable. And the closest modern equivalent that I can think of to describe it would be a rotor ride. You know, the barrel-shaped carnival ride that spins at 33 rotations per minute, producing a centrifugal force of almost 3 Gs, thereby sticking the passenger to the wall as the hydraulic floor sinks away? It's a bit like that. A simple device for taking your own picture, not to be confused with the movie Talkie Camera, is more complex in its design and uses cushions, tubes, cigars, balloons, a dictator, and a light bulb. This device had the rare honor of being lifted from the page and was brought to life in 1970 when it was built for an exhibit at the Smithsonian. And a photograph of Rube Goldberg sitting on the completed machine was taken just two weeks prior to his death. The special movie theater getter-upper was not a traditional RGM, as it has fewer steps than most, but is clever nonetheless by poking theatergoers in the butt via a pinpoint under each seat that gets activated by a foot pedal in the aisles to assist newly arrived audience members in easily accessing their seat as the previously seated obstacles of fellow viewers were now fully erect and rubbing their butt piercings. Another classic RGM is the simple way to get fresh orange juice upon awakening, which employs a magnifying glass, a hot water bag, aspirin, some string, and a jumping jack band leader who prompts a percussionist with cymbals to squeeze the orange. This gimmick is featured on the cover of a book titled The Art of Rube Goldberg and is highlighted in the Rube Goldberg app for iOS called RubeWorks, a great download for creative types, teachers, students, and lovers of puzzles, a phantasmagorical way to pass the time. Rube even solved some real-life maladies with nonsensical solutions, such as a simple way to fish an olive out of one of those long-necked bottles that uses a cigar, paper, a little person, a potato knife, a grindstone, an olive spoon, and a fail-safe glass cutter attached to a clock that activates after 15 minutes if the machine fails to adequately retrieve the user an olive. But perhaps Rube's most famous RGM cartoon is... Professor Butt's self-operating napkin, which was commemorated by the United States Post Office with a stamp in 1995. Possessing a quality that most of Rube's cartoons don't much enjoy, color. The self-operating napkin is a whatchamacallit that rests on the person's head as they eat soup. And the implement starts when... The spoon, tethered to a ladle holding a cracker, was lifted to the mouth of the eater, which then flicked the cracker to a parrot, see, I told you, that would hop from its branch to eat the cracker while spilling its seed into a tiny bucket hitched to a string and pulley system. The pail then lowers with the weight of the seeds wrenching the line to activate a lighter underneath a bottle rocket with a sickle bound to it to cut a third taut string holding the pendulum of a grandfather clock affixed with a napkin at an angle, which is then released, thereby wiping the soup slurper's face. And at this point, I think that it should be noted that although Rube Garrett Lucius Goldberg did possess an engineering degree, 
He never built a real-life functioning machine himself, only in cartoons. In fact, modern-day engineers often encounter problems building their own RGMs because engineering is all about fixing a complex problem with an easy solution. And an RGM does the exact opposite. To be able to make sense of an RGM, you almost have to revert to the anything-is-possible silly imagination from your less cynical, uncorrupted youth. That is exactly why schools of engineering will often participate in competitions that build functioning RGMs. The Rube Goldberg Machine Contest is run by the RGI, the Rube Goldberg Institute, and has been an annual event since 1988, which engages a learning system known by the acronym STEAM, Science, Technology, Engineering, Art, and Math. Every year, the RGI picks a task for all the teams to achieve with their thingamajigs. Contentious teams have the choice to either enter their machine to an online competition or to a live one. Registration for regional and local entries costs $395 with an additional $400 registration fee for teams that make it to the finals, which is pretty darn expensive when you consider the prizes for the finalists, which include a trophy, $1,000, and team ribbons for first place winners of the live contest, and a trophy, $500, team ribbons, and free registration to the following year's contests for first-place winners of the online contest. Because of the radical cost-to-gains difference, teams are encouraged to seek sponsorship for their designs. The 2018 task is pouring a bowl of cereal. Sadly, it is too late to get involved in this year's contest. Sorry it took so long to get this episode out to you. But if you get started today, you will have a massive heads up for the 2019 contest. Here is what you need to do to prepare. Each squadron must have a team leader that is 18 years of age or older administrating a troop of between 3 and 10 student team members that are placed into the contest within four divisions depending on the age of the students. The Apprentice Division is for ages 8 through 11, Division 1 is 11 through 14, Division 2 is 14 through 18, and Division 3 is 18 and older. But these adults must be students in an approved graduate or undergraduate program. In addition, throughout the competition, only students can build the machine, set up the machine, or touch the machine during judging. However, non-team members can assist in the transporting of the machine from the school or workshop to the competitions. Of course, concessions are sometimes made when little kids need help lifting a heavy element of the machine or working with dangerous tools. Any entered device must fall within strict spatial parameters not to exceed 10 feet wide by 10 feet long by 8 feet in height. There must be at least 10 steps incorporated in the machine's design for Division 1 and Apprentice level entries, a minimum of 20 steps for Division 2 and 3 levels, with a capped maximum of 75 steps for all team levels. Students introduce their inventions and demonstrate them to judges and onlookers in a presentation that is no more than three minutes. The runtime of the machine cannot exceed two minutes, and resetting of the machine must be done within eight minutes. Fire, explosives, and other dangerous materials are prohibited, as is the use of animals so Goldbergian parrots are not allowed. But human beings can be a piece of the machine, along with the use of air compressors, water hoses, and power cords. Some past RGI competition tasks, and you can watch videos of these on YouTube, 
have included erase a chalkboard, apply an adhesive bandage, open an umbrella, zip a zipper, hammer a nail, inflate a balloon and pop it, water a plant, assemble a hamburger, squeeze juice from an orange, shred five sheets of paper, shut off an alarm clock, insert and play a CD, put coins in a bank, turn on a radio, make a cup of coffee, unlock a combination lock, sharpen a pencil, stamp a letter, and screw in a light bulb. Answering the age-old question, how many students does it take to screw in a light bulb? Between 3 and 10 with hoses, air compressors, and power cords. Scattered curiosity, even though I highlighted Pee Wee Herman's RGM in the opening monologue, you can find Rube-styled machines in other cinematic classics such as Edward Scissorhands, Back to the Future, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Gremlins, the Home Alone franchise, and another personal favorite of mine, the gate-opening machine from a comedy adventure that totally holds up to today's standards some 33 years later, The Goonies. The television show Elementary depicts a rube-like contraption during its opening credits, and the band OK Go used a face-painting machine in its 2010 music video, This Too Shall Pass, RGM version. And it is assumed that RGM stands for Rube Goldberg Machine. But while Mr. Goldberg enjoys the notoriety of being a noun and an adjective, he is not the only impressive Rube that history has to offer. Consider Rube Foster, also sometimes referred to as the father of black baseball, a talented African-American pitcher from the early 1900s who evolved into the manager of the Chicago American Giants baseball team. And like Rube Goldberg, Rube Foster, too, is depicted on a U.S. postage stamp that came out in 2009. I should point out, however, that Rube was his adopted middle name or nickname whose origin is shrouded in debate. His birth name was Andrew. Andrew Foster claimed that he earned the nickname Rube by defeating the notorious Southpaw from the Philadelphia Athletics, Rube Waddell, in an exhibition game. A likely story, as Rube Foster started his career with the Philadelphia Giants before moving on to the Chicago Leland Giants, where he served as a playing manager, and in 1909, his team faced off with the then world champion Chicago Cubs in a series of exhibition games, the second of which he pitched and lost his 5-2 lead in a heavily contested manner. Apparently, one of the Chicago Cubs stole home plate while Rube was arguing with an umpire. Foster took control of his team in 1910, and when the Chicago White Sox moved into Comiskey Park, Rube was able to take over their former stadium, Southside Park, and changed his team name to the Chicago American Giants, who he conditioned to be speed bunters, power pitchers, and place hitters. After seven seasons, Rube ceased being a playing manager and served as a bench manager who developed stern policies about his players' professionalism, conduct, and appearance. And in 1920, he and other team owners formed what we now know as the Negro National League, which seated Rube Foster as president while he was still the manager of his Chicago American Giants. A bit of a conflict of interest, which was met with much criticism as scheduling and personnel assignments were entirely in his control. Rube Foster would begin to lose control of his life five years later, however, after an incident involving a gas leak that nearly killed him and, according to his constituents, changed his behavior permanently. He is said to have become completely paranoid and 
started to carry a gun with him everywhere he went. Rube Foster was put into an asylum in Kankakee, Illinois a year later and missed seeing his American Giants win the NNL World Series two years in a row. Rube died in 1930, and a year later, so did the NNL. Every September, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum holds the annual Andrew Rube Foster Lecture. And if you care to read Foster's words, Rube Foster wrote a piece that is included in Soul White's The Official Baseball Guide, History of Colored Baseball, in a section titled, How to Pitch. Now, if you'll recall in the introduction, I read the definition of Rube as a country bumpkin, an inexperienced, unsophisticated person, or a nickname often, but not necessarily, of Reuben. Well, our next Rube is all three. The Alabama train robber and outlaw Rube Burrow, who is known for heisting locomotives in Texas, Arkansas, Alabama, and Louisiana from 1886 to 1890. Born Reuben Houston Burrow in 1855, Rube grew up on a farm and then left that farm at the age of 18 to go work on another farm, his uncle's, and for seven years, he was living the dream. Married with two kids and saving up to buy a farm of his own until his wife suddenly bought the farm, as it were, and died of yellow fever, which put his farm buying plans on hold for another four years as he regrouped, regained, and remarried. Once Rube Burrow finally had the finances to purchase his own ranch, he just could not catch a break and suffered terrible luck as his crops did not yield a profit. I imagine a combination of frustration, desperation, fear, and stupidity must have befallen Rube when he and his brother Jim decided to rob their first train in 1886. You see, traditionally, you rob a train in the middle of nowhere to induce the element of surprise, but more importantly, to avoid getting caught. The Burrow brothers burgled their first train as it pulled into the station at Bellevue, Texas. Once the train was stopped and they were holding the crewmen at gunpoint, all of the passengers could foresee the inevitable, and began to hide most of their valuables, allowing themselves to be robbed of the less expensive things that they had with them. Rube, Jim, and a posse of four other men barely got away with $300 when the authorities chased them off with gunfire. After six months of licking his paws, Rube got the old band together again and made sure their next purse would be aboard a moving train that they would force the engineer to stop outside of the town. This second heist netted them $1,000 more than their first, which had to be encouraging because the gang had the nuts to rob another train in the same location three months later and reportedly yielded guesstimates of between $1,200 and $12,000 which I readily admit is quite a gap. But their biggest confirmed payday came with their next robbery in Arkansas of a train that was carrying lottery money totaling between ten dollars and $40,000. Only the train that they robbed was protected by the Southern Express Company, which just so happened to be a client of the infamous Pinkerton Detective Agency the very syndicate that took down a prior infamous pair of train-robbing brothers, Frank and Jesse James. Once on their trail, the Pinkertons nabbed one of the gang members, Jim Brock, who identified Rue Burrow as the gang leader and surprised the Pinkertons because Burrow had no criminal record whatsoever for them to profile. So... The Pinkertons were forced to wait for Rube Burrow to make a mistake, like mailing a letter to Jim Brock 
with the return address of his home in Alabama. Rube Burrow had gotten word that he was found out and evacuated the premises by the time the Pinkertons got there to arrest him. Rube and his brother decided to flee via the one form of transportation that they were guaranteed to be identified on, a train. And they were instantly ID'd by the conductor who decisively stopped the train where it was promptly encircled by a police force who got into a shootout with the brothers resulting in Jim's capture, who died of tuberculosis while in custody. But Rube got away and laid low for two months before he and an accomplice robbed another train in Duck Hill, Mississippi, and was again recognized by the conductor. It should be noted that Rube was a bit of a folk hero of sorts, along the lines of the James brothers or even Bonnie and Clyde, who was known for robbing trains and the elite, but not killing them. Until two train passengers tried to intervene. Although according to Rube, he only shot one of the passengers whose gun went off upon hitting the floor and shot the gun out of the hands of the other would-be hero passenger. From this point forward, though, each progressive robbery proved to be sloppier than the last, which emboldened Rube to the level of his undoing. He just always managed to get away and would continue to do so for another two years. He was finally captured in October of 1890 by a couple of rural folks in Marengo County, Alabama. Rube offered his captors $100 to let him go, but was rejected on the grounds that once freed, Rube would most likely shoot the men. After some time in his jail cell, he started to complain that he was hungry, and he asked the guard if he could have his bag, which contained ginger snaps within it, and they gave it to him without looking inside the bag, which also had a gun in it. Rube broke out of jail, locking a guard in the cell that he once occupied, and brought another one of them with him as a hostage. Burroughs' freedom would be short-lived, as Rube was soon after shot in the street by one of the guys who helped bring him in, Jeff Dixie Carter. Rube Burroughs' dead body was put on a train back to his home, but when the train made a pit stop in Birmingham, Alabama, People lined up to steal locks of his hair, buttons from his coat, and someone even made off with the famous outlaw's boots. When Rube's father, Allen Burrow, came to the depot to retrieve his son's casket, the crew viciously threw it off the train at his feet. And who could blame them? Rube was hated amongst those in the rail industry. Which begs the question... Why haven't we heard of this guy? Somebody needs to make the movie, and Cher has to make a Reuben Houston Burrow song just like Jesse James. Another Reuben worthy of a Cher song is the Reuben Sandwich, a classic deli staple that is comprised of corned beef, sauerkraut, Swiss cheese, and is served warm on rye bread and topped with Russian sauce. Though it may not be so one-of-a-kind as there is some debate over its true origin. The popular version here in New York City is that the comestible was invented at Rubin's Delicatessen by its 1908 owner, Arnold Rubin. The Rubin special debuted six years later. However, the sandwich's first mention in print was circa 1926 within the pages of Theater Magazine. Because of the 12-year gap that exists between its rollout and its mention in the publication, there are claims that Ruben Kulakowski, a grocer and patron of the Blackstone Hotel in Omaha, Nebraska, instead invented the sandwich. Kulakowski was a poker buddy of the hotel's owner, Charles Schimmel, who put Kulikovsky's Reuben sandwich on the lunch menu. This theory has much support, 
as every March 14th is Reuben Sandwich Day in Omaha, Nebraska. And nationwide, there exist many variations of this meaty delight to be found, like the Montreal Reuben, which trades out the corned beef for locally butchered and smoked meat. The walleye Reuben is popular in Ohio and Minnesota, where the corned beef is replaced with Minnesota state fish, the walleye. In parts of Florida, you can order another Pescado-flavored rendition of the breaded concoction, a grouper Reuben. There are even Reuben egg rolls, sometimes referred to as an Irish egg roll, or Reuben balls. The Rachel sandwich swaps the corned beef for pastrami and the sauerkraut for coleslaw, but if you order a Rachel with turkey, it then qualifies to be designated as a California Reuben or a Georgia Reuben. And right across the Hudson River in New Jersey, you can get a pork roll Reuben. While amassing research for this episode, which was actually intended to just be about Rube Goldberg, the auto-populate function in Google brought all of these intriguing Rubes to my attention, along with some proportionately compelling Rubies that I felt deserved mentioning, starting with Colonel Ruby Bradley, perhaps the most decorated woman in the history of the United States military. Prior to World War II, Ruby Bradley was a surgical nurse who would go on to serve in the Philippines and become a POW caught by Japanese forces a few weeks following the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Imprisoned for more than two years, Ruby was transferred to an internment camp where she met other captured nurses of the conflict. A group of ladies known to history as angels in fatigues. Ruby Bradley was ever a soldier of duty, tended to her fellow prisoners in need, and stashed morsels of food away to feed the hungry children that she encountered, sparing herself the much-needed calories, causing her to lose weight, thereby freeing up more room in her loose clothes and pockets to fit even more smuggled food and surgical tools. Ruby was involved in 230 operations in the camp, as well as the delivery of 13 babies. She was eventually rescued by U.S. troops in early February 1945 and remained in the military thereafter. She was the chief nurse at the 171st Evacuation Hospital during the Korean War and risked her life in 1950 when Chinese soldiers were advancing on Pyongyang as she stood her ground, refusing to evacuate until she got all of her patients on a plane to safety. And that's what she did, allowing her to fight another day, this time as chief nurse for the 8th Army. A job Ruby did so well, she was promoted to colonel. Ruby retired from the armed forces in 1963. In total, Colonel Ruby Bradley earned 34 medals, awards, and honors, some of which are the Bronze Star Medal, the Prisoner of War Medal, the Legion of Merit, the Army Commendation Medal, a Meritorious Unit Commendation, the American Campaign Medal, a Presidential Unit Citation, a World War II Victory Medal, the American Defense Service Medal, the Korean Service Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, the Florence Nightingale Medal, and the Philippine Liberation Medal. And she wasn't the only heroic ruby I came across in my search. Have you ever heard of Ruby Bridges? At six years of age in 1960, Ruby Bridges became the first African-American child to attend a whites-only educational institution in New Orleans, Louisiana, at the behest of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP. Ruby's parents, especially her mother, recognized the significance behind the desegregation of American schools and allowed Ruby to take the test to qualify her for enrollment to a white school. 
she was one of only six kids to pass the exam. As you might expect, some of the townsfolk rioted and protested the desegregation of their classrooms, and on what would be Ruby's first day at her new school, white parents pulled their kids out of classes and all but one of the teachers refused to teach. Barbara Henry, who taught Ruby one-on-one for that entire year. The parent of a white student broke the school boycott the following day, Lloyd Anderson Foreman, a minister who bravely brought his five-year-old daughter through the displeased rabble. The incidents that took place at William Franz Elementary School have been immortalized by Norman Rockwell's painting, The Problem We All Live With. But the scene of William Franz Elementary was not picture-perfect once the kids went back to school. Poor Ruby was menaced by the same woman every day on her way to school who threatened to poison her, a six-year-old girl. As a result, Ruby was resigned to only eat food that she brought from home. So much outrage was created over the situation that President Eisenhower had to assign U.S. Marshals to escort the girl and her mother to school for the remainder of the year. Ruby's father was hesitant to allow her to even go in the first place, and with good reason. He lost his job as a result of it, and the local grocery store would no longer accept their patronage. Even her grandparents were dispossessed of their sharecropping property. But Ruby persevered and has been fighting inequality ever since. In 1999, she wrote a book titled Through My Eyes. This inspiring heroine of our nation was presented with the Presidential Citizens Medal in 2001 by Bill Clinton and had the opportunity to meet another president a decade later to set eyes upon the Norman Rockwell painting alongside Barack Obama, who commented to Ruby, quote, I think it's fair to say that if it hadn't been for you guys, I might not be here and we wouldn't be looking at this together, end quote. A statue of Ruby Bridges stands in the courtyard of William Franz Elementary School today. Ruby still lives in New Orleans and is head of the Ruby Bridges Foundation. There is a made-for-TV movie about her life called Ruby Bridges, as well as a song titled Ruby's Shoes by Lori McKenna. And this is probably as good a time as any to point out that there are a lot of other great songs with the name Ruby in the title. Don't believe me? I'll name 20. Ruby Tuesday, The Rolling Stones. Ruby Baby, Dion. See Ruby Fall, Johnny Cash. Rock and Roll Ruby, Jerry Lee Lewis. Ravishing Ruby, Tom T. Hall. Ruby Lee, Joe Cocker. Ruby Take Your Love to Town, Waylon Jennings. Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town, Kenny Rogers. Through the Eyes of Ruby, Smashing Pumpkins. Ruby Room, Foxborough Hot Tubs. Ruby My Love, Donnie and the Dreamers. Ruby Ann, Marty Robbins. Ruby May, Indigo Swing. Ruby Soho, Rancid. I Got Love for You, Ruby, Frankie Valley. Ruby Sees All, Cake, another one of my favorite bands. Ruby Deer, The Talking Heads. Ruby Magic, Portugal the Man, and, to a lesser extent, Rubella by the Smoking Popes. But Ruby isn't just a good song subject matter. Rubes and Rubies seem to excel at making music as well. Ruby Johnson was a soul singer from the 1960s who waited tables and sang with local R&B bands until becoming the voice of professional groups such as Samuel Latham and the Rhythm Makers and Ambrose and the Showstoppers. Upon getting representation, Ruby Johnson recorded her first single for the V-Tone label, Calling All Boys, followed by Plead in Heart. 
Her manager had his own label called NEBS, or NEBS, on which Ruby recorded Worried Mind, Nobody Cares, Don't Start Nothing, Jerk Shout, I'm Hooked, What Goes Up Must Come Down, I Want a Real Man, Reach Out and Touch Me, Come Back to Me, and Here I Go Again. And a DJ from Memphis, Tennessee, who is a big fan of her work, is greatly responsible for helping her land a contract with Stax Records in 1965, where she recorded If I Ever Needed Love, Keep On Keeping On, and I'll Run Your Hurt Away alongside such music legends as Isaac Hayes, Steve Cropper, David Porter, Al Jackson, and Donald Duck Dunn via Stax Records sublabel Volt. And despite a number 31 on the Billboard R&B charts, most of her albums were met with only moderate sales, and in 1974, she hung up her singing shoes. She would then go on to be the head of a program called Foster Grandparents, which was a governmental organization to bridge awareness between handicapped children and the elderly. Stax Records released a compilation of Ruby Johnson tracks titled I'll Run Your Hurt Away in 1993 that is available for you to buy right now, as are recordings of songs written by Rube Bloom, a band leader, pianist, author, songwriter, and recording artist who lived from 1902 until 1976. His best-known band was Rube Bloom and his Bayou Boys, who were highly regarded musicians during the Great Depression. It was the supergroup of its time, with members like Tommy Dorsey, Benny Goodman, Manny Klein, and Adrian Rolini. Rube Bloom wrote the songs Truckin', not the Grateful Dead one, I Can't Face the Music, made popular by Ella Fitzgerald, Everybody's Twistin', recorded by Frank Sinatra, in addition to writing with lyricist Johnny Mercer on Fool's Rush In, Day In, Day Out, and Here's to My Lady. Another musical rube out of Pelahatchie, Mississippi, and contemporary of Rube Bloom, was Rube Lacey, a country blues guitar player and singer who recorded for Columbia Records in 1927. But don't bother looking for those recordings online because the masters were all destroyed. Rube Lacey's only surviving recorded material comes from Paramount Records with the songs Ham Hound Crave and Mississippi Jailhouse Grown. And lest you think that all musicians that fit today's category are dead, let me tell you about Ruby Jane Smith, a singer-songwriter who had the honor of being the youngest fiddler to play at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, Tennessee at the age of 10, and has since performed with Willie Nelson, Ray Benson, Rhonda Vincent, Drake Bell, and has been an official performer at the Austin City Limits Music Festival. As of 2018, she has four CDs. As if anyone even needs compact discs anymore. All flashy and reflective in their protective jewel cases. Scattered curiosity, the reason they are called jewel cases, stems from a word that watchmakers use to describe a, quote, polished hemispherical bearing, end quote, that are common components to fancy watches, which sometimes use precious stones, a.k.a. jewels, for such purposes as they cause little to no grinding. These are the same tiny plastic pegs that hold the hinged cover of your jewel cases. And a frequently used jewel in the aforementioned fancy watches are, you guessed it, rubies. The traditional birthstone of July named via the Latin word for red, ruber. A ruby is an exquisite gem of red corundum, aluminum oxide, that is in the same family as sapphires, but 
tinted with hues that fall between the colors of pink and blood red. Rubies are classified as cardinal gems alongside emeralds and the epitome of rocks, diamonds, one of only two natural gems harder than a ruby. The other is moissanite. The richest ruby on earth is known as the Sunrise Ruby and was sold at auction for $30 million. But the biggest ruby ever unearthed is the Liberty Bell Ruby, which was stolen in a jewel heist in 2011. Appraisal of these stones is determined by the four C's, cut, color, carat, and clarity. The bloodiest rubies are worth the most, followed by the clearest. In addition to the four C's, value is also placed on where the rubies originate from, such as Macedonia, a place so well known for its rare rubies resembling raspberry colors that they are on the Macedonian coat of arms. And I would be remiss if I didn't at least give a shout-out to the Rubicon River, a low-level waterway in northeastern Italy from the heyday of the Roman Republic when it served as the boundary between Cisalpine Gaul and Italy. Its name is derived from the Latin word rubico and the adjective rubius, which means red, because the mud deposits beneath the waters gave it a ruddy red color. It is this watercourse that Julius Caesar crossed in 49 BCE, thereby violating the Roman law on Imperium, which forbids a general from taking an army into Rome, a serious offense punishable by death. This was the moment that Caesar supposedly uttered, Alia Iacta S. The die has been cast. And the saying crossing the Rubicon has come to mean a person or persons rebelling against the status quo by quite literally going to a point where there is no turning back. In response to this action, many of the heads of the Roman Senate sandaled it out of town knowing the level of loyalty that Julius Caesar had from his troops, and he would enjoy a lucrative dictatorship for the next couple of years. Scattered curiosity, the words Kaiser, Tsar, and Tsar were all rooted in Caesar's name and mean dictator. In 44 BCE, the divine Julius was stabbed in the back 23 times by his fellow Romans of the Senate, even Brutus. And two years after the bloody affair, there was a bit of an issue with the Rubicon when Octavian annexed the area of Cisalpine Gaul on the other side of the river, which meant it was no longer the border of Italy. So the Rubicon lost its significance as it was never a major waterway to begin with. Since Julius Caesar's time, the river has been irrigated and has even changed course, as rivers do, so you can't really cross it yourself in the exact place Caesar did, even if you could find it, because little evidence of the occurrence exists today. And for more about Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire, you have got to download Dan Carlin's hardcore history podcast, Celtic Holocaust, and his Death Throes of the Republic series. The man is an inspiration, sage, and makes my show sound like a bag of wet garbage. And I thought that there would be something about rubles in this episode, but it turns out that they are not related to rubies, other than having monetary worth and a similarly sounding name. Rubles are a denomination of money often associated with Russia. One ruble can be split into a hundred kopecks, and a hundred rubles make a palachka. At the onset of World War I, a ruble was worth half an American dollar. But by the 1920s, the Russian ruble was subject to such massive inflation that it was replaced with the Soviet ruble for 70 years 
after the decline of Imperial Russia before becoming the Russian ruble again in 1992. If you liked today's episode, please keep your rubies, diamonds, and palachkas in your pockets and instead donate a like, a review, a share, or all three on whichever podcast platform that you invite into your ears. It 100% helps me scatter the heck out of these here curiosities. If you'd like to help us keep the curiosities coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.